0: Take me up on cloud to cloud To the mass of mist that is heaven's mystery Bear and unburden me on wings of peace To the peace I've missed in dogma's freefall certainties Take me, turn me, hold me, burn me Show me all there is I cannot see Return me to myself, my God, my doubt, and desperation prayer in song. Take me to an altar on the water where I can leave my tunic and demands. Scold me with your silence and persistence in it and hang me toe to sky upon your bloodied tree. Singe my lips with your wretched quiet lack of answers and prune me of the pride which claims to know your names Lame me bless me keep me shine a light that sets my little righteous lamp of facts ablaze bury and rebear me anew again 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 anew I'm Tim Ritter, and I'm Nate Hansen. and we're Almost Heretical,
1: coming to you from a shed in Bend, Oregon. So we made a podcast. And we put it out on the internet, the interwebs, and people listened to it. And that was kind of actually a little bit surprising and a little overwhelming for me. I, we were just talking in the shed and we like we didn't even know if we were going to release this stuff. We weren't 100% sure what we were going to do with it or when we were going to release it. And we put it out there and people actually listen to it. And so that's super cool to have a lot of you along on this journey. Thank you for listening and thank you for uh, emailing in and and calling in and the different ways you've gotten in touch on Twitter or whatever. Um, We're really bad at Twitter, but thanks for getting in touch with us. Anyways, um, yeah, so thank you for that. And I think one of the things I heard from people was... Like, this is really good. This is really deep. Some of it's going over my head. I'm not sure I'm with you on all the things, all the connections you're making. And I don't know, maybe they didn't have a better explanation for some of these verses or whatever, but but they kind of felt like they had to agree with all of it or, or whatever, um, and maybe just weren't comfortable with some of it. But the main question that came back was,
0: yeah, why, why do you kind of this deep dive into theology right at, right off the top? Yes, we thought it'd be a good idea to uh, have a conversation sit down and and pull back a little bit and reflect on, like, why even do theology? Why does theology matter? And specifically kind of try to articulate our way through the tension of we actually have beef with a lot of the evangelical world, especially those that sit at the top of the evangelical power structure, who have made Christianity all about believing the right theology and adhering to the right system of doctrines. So the last thing we want to do is just insert ourselves as, as replacement leaders who you need to come to to get all your right. Okay, hey, that one's wrong. Come over here. This one's right. Everyone's done that. Exactly. So I actually think it's sweet if people are listening saying, I think I'm tracking, maybe sort of kind of tracking, not sure if I believe this, not sure if I want to believe this. I think that's awesome. That's part of wrestling. That's part of what we're doing, even as we're presenting some of these ideas. But there are some really important reasons to us as to why we're even engaging at the theological level, why we're dealing with the Bible, why the Bible matters, and there are a few different ways of framing that. So today, we're just going to sit down and talk about theology, Bible, why we're doing all this.
1: Okay. So yeah, theology. So why does what we believe about God, why does that matter? And why do we need to, why do we even need to re-examine our, you know, the personal theology that we
0: hold, I guess? Yeah, Nate, you and I have talked a lot about this. There's a tendency with a lot of our friends and people we've worked with in the church to want to say that what we believe the set of doctrines and our th- and our theological system of belief that that's all different from people's actions and issues going on in the church and issues uh issues in the culture at at large and don't blame those issues on the theology that's different blame those issues on people being sinners yeah and i don't know if anyone would say
1: you know there's there's no connection because i hear that a lot right that like theology your theology is important because it's going to be that's going to impact how you live, right? But then I think more so what it is, is we we just want to kind of rule out the, the worst case, what we would call the worst case, um, of the theology playing itself out. So, uh, you know, that guy, that guy just had pride and, um, he was, you know, addicted to power, or whatever like that, that that's why he, that's why that happened. It had nothing to do with the theology he held or, you know, these views, these bad, um, political views or whatever that oppress people. Like that's, that's just, you know, those people, they're, they're sinners and they're, they're selfish and they want to, they want to hoard and, you know, control stuff for themselves. It's not, it's not connected to the theology that they, that they actually hold. So I don't know if anyone would say theology is completely separate from your actions, but they would just want to discredit the the bad ways that that theology is playing itself out, um, and and just look at the the good ones or the people that aren't that aren't doing those things.
0: Yeah, And I think one specific example that uh, that's been really challenging and at times frustrating for you and I. Is the different ways that we and others around us even in our own families view the significance of 81% of evangelicals voting for Donald Trump. So I want to say that there's an inherent relationship between the belief systems, the demographic of white evangelicalism that leads them to be one of the predominant Demographic groups that Trump can point to, and the Republican Party can look to for political support. I want to say there's a there's must be an inherent relationship between the theology and ideology of that wing of the church and the ideology of the Republican Party. Because there's no other demographic group (laughs) that voted
1: eighty one percent any anything for anything, right? But that just doesn't happen.
0: The pushback that I've heard though wants to say that. There is no such connection, and it's distancing the theology and the wing of the church that you come from, from Trump saying, you know, I didn't vote for Trump because I thought he was a good person, I I don't think Trump's a Christian, Uh, he's not a Jesus figure in my life, even though he is to a lot of other Christians in America, don't make a bigger deal out of this than it is. And I think there's enough information out there, some statistics and, uh, and a couple really good points being made that are just saying that's too easy, it's escapist, and that's trying to get ourselves off of a hook in a way that just isn't being ethically responsible for the theology that we are representing, and especially for those who are espousing that theology and teaching it at a broad level.
1: Yeah, I, I hear that a lot too, and people saying... You know, a year later, I wouldn't vote for him again, but there's two articles we're going to kind of reference. Well, one we're going to reference and one you just really need to read. You should just go check out this article called Being Evangelical Means Never Having to Say You're Sorry. And we'll link to that in the show notes. But then also there's this other one by Jamar Tisby. It's called White Evangelicals Must Ask, Why Does Our Theology Lead to Republicanism? And he shows in there that over a year later after Trump still... 80% of white evangelicals voted for Roy Moore, who is an alleged child molester. So I want to hear that, you know, I wouldn't vote for again, but the numbers show that the white evangelical vote actually remained the same even over a year later from Trump to to Moore.
0: Yeah, if you look at the stats, so 80% of white born-again Christians voted for Roy Moore in the midst of a whole litany of allegations of essentially rape, sexual assault, child molestation. Which you'd think goes against every single value of the conservative wing of the church. Only 18% of white born-again Christians voted for Roy Moore's opposition. Out of everyone else in Alabama who voted in the election, who's not self-identified as a white born-again Christian... 76% of those people voted for Jones, and only 22% of them voted for Moore. So what's crystal clear, these statistics are an almost exact replica of the national election statistics with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, is that there's an absolute parallel line that can be drawn between self-identified white, born-again Christians, most of those people would, would also identify as being evangelicals, and essentially unfettered support for Republican candidates, even when those candidates have publicly admitted to, to going against essentially every single element of what would otherwise be conservative Christian values. Divorce, sexual assault, lying, all sorts of that stuff. And listen, I know from talking to evangelicals who voted for Trump that the most common response is that this was a decision all about abortion. And it's not supposed to mean anything more than that. It was simply about abortion. But listen, a few months into Trump's presidency, Pew Research took polls and found that 39% of the public approved of Trump's first few months in office. Only 39% was happy with what he was doing and saying. And yet, 78% of white evangelicals approved to some extent of what Trump was doing and sixty four percent of that seventy eight very strongly approved of Trump's job performance. I probably don't have to remind you of all of the crazy things that Donald Trump did and said and lied about just in his first couple months in office
1: yeah and it seems like this article is making the point that uh, i don't know I don't know about you but, but I'm always <laughs> frustrated that um, it's it almost seemed seen as holy and and better to not talk about politics from the we're a church that doesn't talk about politics from the pulpit um, because it it's we're going to talk about the real issue of the heart and we're going to talk about the relationship with Jesus and because that solves all these problems and uh, it and we don't we're gonna be above the 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 small conversations of who's in and the worldly conversations of who's in power and who's in control in, in our nation and that's not really what's important what's important is, the personal relationship with Jesus. And so we're not going to talk about politics from the pulpit. Hey, Brian,
0: do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure that's true but it is available wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> yeah Tisby actually is referencing a book Divided by Faith uh, by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith and what he's doing is, is pulling a couple of the, the sociological observations in that book and connecting them and what he's saying is there are essentially three aspects of white evangelical thinking when it comes to essentially the church and culture and politics. And they're essentially all versions of spiritual individualism. And it's essentially that the gospel is is about reconciling you as an individual to God, specifically through God forgiving you of your sins, and that the only real outworkings of that are for individuals to reconcile with one another. So this is a case in point of where you get to people saying, I'm not a racist because I love you, I don't hate you. And you have a whole other segment of the population that's saying, wait, 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 racism is about systemic injustice, systemic oppression, large scale corporate policies and the way that our entire country is organized and framed. And there's been this strong pushback for decades now in the evangelical wing of the church that says, no, 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 those are social issues. And Christianity and the gospel is about individual issues, individuals having their heart changed. And so there's this constant pushback that wants to define, and I would say redefine, all of Christianity and even Christian ethics into the realm of the individual and say that it's not the role of the church to discuss the realm of the systemic, large-scale, statewide, countywide, nationwide problems. So what you have is this painful irony where the same wing of the church that is most consistently aligned with the Republican Party, whose political ideology is most predictable because it essentially is is 80% connected to the Republican Party. That same wing of the church is the wing that most wants to say the church isn't a place to talk about politics. We shouldn't talk about politics from the stage. We just got an email from a guy who found the podcast in the first week or two, just from our opening conversation that mentioned the name Donald Trump, he said we had strayed from the faith and we shouldn't talk about politics. It's a, a representation of that same camp. But the irony is, it's, it's ignoring the fact that that, that theological s- statement that, that Christianity really is only working at the level of individuals and individual heart change, and it isn't meant to challenge our systems, that that is in itself a political stance, which is affirming— and conserving the systems that we already have in place. So it actually is a theological ideology that reinforces conservative politics. Okay, so you're
1: saying that if 80, 81% of the people that are in our theological, hold the same theology as us, in our theological camp, vote for a Trump or a, a Moore or something like that, that those people, what we generally hear is, you know, that's a misuse of the, the, of the theology and, and whatever, instead of looking at the theology and saying, Hey, was there, is the theology the thing to blame? Do we need actually need to re-examine this and, and change something here?
0: Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a tendency in, in white evangelical culture to make an excuse for our theology and to distance our theology. As, and this comes, especially from those at the top who are responsible for dispelling the theology. There's a, there's a desire and an active effort to distance the theology from any negative consequences that that theology causes. And so what people want to say is that when white supremacists are found in the camp, are found in your tribal affiliation, a part of white evangelicalism, using your theological systems that those people are rare negative exceptions and those people should be treated as exceptions and the theology itself needs to be preserved. And what we're saying is there's so much evidence building up when you look at the ties between conservative culture and white evangelicalism. That's exactly what Tisby's article is saying is the evidence is undeniable and all white evangelicals need to do an honest reflection of where this connection is coming from that that leads to us saying, no, 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 no. You can't separate your ideology from the consequences of that ideology. You can't call bad uses of it an exception when the the uses of it are predominant. They're not the exception, they're the norm. When 81% of white Alabama evangelicals vote for a known alleged child molester. That is not the exception. That is the actual legitimate fruit of the theological systems that these people are adhering to, so there are a hundred other cases we can make. But our main point is to say <laughs> theology matters. There's a there is a kind of theological trickle down effect, where those at the top who espouse certain systems of belief, they usually actually are the best exceptions. the The people writing books and uh, that represent. Coalitions and whatnot are usually the people who are the most nuanced and the most careful with the th- with their theology And what I've been told over and over again is we should only judge their theology By the best version of it and what I want to say is well actually if the best version of it if the best version of white evangelicalism is the exception and not the norm then I would disagree completely. We need to judge the theological system and the Christian culture itself by the norm, not by the rare exception. Yeah, there was a um, theological leader in our country that
1: tweeted recently, and, uh, and we did an episode on Tower of Babel, um, Genesis 11. Let's go back and check that one out. Um, but he tweeted, the, uh, Genesis 11, verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. And then the, the the words that he tweeted were, Be careful, Dubai, and New York, and Beijing,
0: and London, and Sao Paulo, and Cairo. So the original tweet itself wasn't espousing any particularly toxic ideology. It's just sort of a silly, simplistic interpretation of the Bible text as being anti-skyscraper, which has close to nothing to do with the actual meaning of the text. But what happens is all you have to do is go nine comments down. And this interpretation of scripture, that the Tower of Babel is God not liking skyscrapers, is taken to mean that God is anti-city and anti-urban development. And then this person reading this tweet makes one more logical connection to say actually it's environmentalism, it's protection of the environment rather than humans going out and taking dominion over the world. It's environmental protections that are the problem that God wants to condemn. Meaning nine comments down someone was able to take this theological interpretation of the Tower of Babel and fit it perfectly into their ultra-conservative ideology. And what we see over and over again is the people that are at the top espousing themselves as the theological teachers want to distance themselves from the consequences of their ideas without doing any work to clean up the mess that their ideas are making. So there's no effort to correct and say, actually, that's a horrendous use of this theological system that I presented. You can't do that. Don't do that with these ideas. That doesn't happen And what does happen is these theological systems end up becoming one of the tools that is most used by the conservative religious right in America to justify their political ideologies.
1: think i see this most clearly with the neo-reformed calvinistic camp um funny story a friend told me this um that two of two of our friends were in the park and they were like hey let's you know we were. They started talking to this person and they were like oh like we can share jesus with this person and and uh this one friend is like you know jesus loves you and just that, like super basic jesus loves you um and the other friend kind of like pulled her aside and was like what we can't we can't say that we don't know that we can't just tell them that you know because <laughs> of uh, election and predestination and, and all these things um and i was just like smacking my forehead like no like this this is this is the example of the the theology how it plays itself out and not wanting to say you know, just looking at that and saying, "Well, she just, you know, she just made it. That that's stupid." Like, obviously, you wouldn't tell someone that Jesus doesn't love them. And instead of looking back at the actual, uh, the actual theology behind that, because truthfully, if you if you do believe that God chose some people and for for heaven and some people for for hell, then she's right. Like, you probably shouldn't tell that person that that Jesus loves you. So instead of going all the way back and actually looking at the theology and saying, "Is this is this actually?" good? Is this right? There's something you need to change here. It's
0: just analyzing the,
1: like, the actual, like, what was said and saying, like, yeah, she probably shouldn't have said that.
0: Yeah, totally. There's this compartmentalization that doesn't want to ask the question, does our theology even work? And as that story illustrates, if if you can't actually articulate to someone that Christianity is good, that Jesus is loving, that the gospel is good news, then your theology clearly doesn't work. But this actually happens so much more and at higher levels than i think most of us understand i actually had a seminary professor lead a conversation kind of debate around providence which if any of you guys have been in bible college where this is like half of the argument and so it's basically calvinism versus arminianism versus open theism which is all essentially trying to answer the question like how does it work if God is in control and bad things happen, and how do we make sense of this, and, and what system do we approach this through? And this professor, who was essentially a, a staunch Calvinist, actually got to the point of saying, listen, the views of five-point Calvinism that essentially say God is meticulously in control of every bad thing that happens, including the death of your child or cancer Or whatnot. That idea doesn't actually work for people emotionally. So if you're a pastor, you can't preach it. And if someone around you is suffering, you can't tell them that. But you have to believe it. It's the right theology. You have to believe it, even though it doesn't work. So he actually said twice in one class, you should preach like an Arminianist and believe like a Calvinist. And after I had almost thrown up in my mouth, about 30 minutes later, he actually said, in all of life, you should live like an Arminianist and believe like a Calvinist. Meaning, he is so far down this rabbit hole of compartmentalizing doctrine and theology and what we're supposed to believe with how life actually works and whether those theological ideas actually work do they bear good fruit or bad fruit what kind of consequences do they lead to that he was willing to admit fortunately he was willing to admit most people don't that his calvinistic views actually don't work at all for anybody who's experiencing any sort of suffering and yet he refused to let go of those theological ideas and And that kind of thinking, actually promoting that to a bunch of seminary kids, is based in the same notion that we can and should distance our theological ideas from the actions and consequences and behaviors and the other ideas that happen downstream as a result.
1: Yeah. Okay, so Tim, we've been kind of comparing the mythological concept of trickle-down economics with what happens with theology and and how your theology is actually kind of like a stream that leads to something and how ideas flow downstream. And we're just saying theology really, really matters. And you don't just want to look at the end of the stream and say, oh, we might need to change this one little you know piece of how we're using our theology at the very end and how that might have hurt someone or something like that. You want to go back up to the very top, to the mountain and say, "What's the theology there?" And I'm responsible for that theology that I believe, or if I, or for your teacher, definitely that I'm teaching, responsible for that because it's trickling down into some
0: really harmful things. Exactly. I think the reason we've landed on this trickle down theology analogy, it's it's a reference to the idea of trickle down economics, which is what just justified this recent tax plan which is the premise, which I would argue is is a complete false myth. The premise is that if you give massive, massive tax cuts to the richest 0.1% of the country, that okay. those economic benefits will somehow trickle down through our economic system so that the poorest of the poor end up receiving benefits and everyone is affected along the way. And it just doesn't ever happen. It never happens. And that's a separate economics podcast. But the idea actually works with ideas, and there actually is a traceable flow from the top. And when I say the top, I essentially mean the, the thought leaders, the people with the most power and influence, oftentimes uh, in the academic world or essentially asserting themselves as being uh, in the academic world, that there are highly influential people whose ideas trickle down from scholars to denominations, from denominations to their pastors, from those pastors to lay leaders in their church, from those lay leaders to everyday people, from those people to the people that read them on Twitter. There are trickle-down ideologies. And our point here is to say that, A, you can actually trace that certain theological ideas become much, much more toxic as they trickle down this stream than other theological ideas. And that matters. You can't ignore that. A good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And if our theological systems, if our ideas become ugly and toxic at the bottom of the stream, then the top of the stream needs critique. It needs adjustment. It needs to be challenged. And so part of what we're saying, first of all, is to just make the point that Theological ideas matter, especially in a, in a country where Christianity is still the majority culture. But specifically, what we want to do is go upstream and challenge the source of ideas, which ends up being a lot of the basic Bible interpretations and the, some of the key doctrines or arguments about doctrine. And so the reason we get into a bunch of obscure theology, for instance, the stuff we've done so far on the Old Testament view of what the fall is, is so that we can actually go and undermine some of the views on the meaning of the cross or the role of the church or the role of violence or how we're to think about gender and race. And we want to say that there are certain theological paradigms that as they trickle down this ideological stream simply fail to be good and true and beautiful in the way that Christianity needs to be, and therefore those systems and interpretations and theologies need to be critiqued. So yeah, so like stick with us because like I, like we said throughout all those episodes,
1: we don't just want to do like, hey, we're going to find some weird verses in the Bible and it's going to be between, you, you know, you're going to have to kind of wrestle with that and wrestle with the predominant view and see which one you like best and then, you know, see if it fits and kind of go with it or whatever. This is mainly about critiquing the predominant view because the predominant view has led to 81% of evangelicals voting for a child molester. So that might seem like I drew too thick, too bold of a line between the two, but I really don't think so. And and these these ideas do trickle down and, and they do matter.
0: Yeah. And maybe this is a good time to pause and say, I know that there are some people listening that are totally tracking with us and others who are getting frustrated and offended and have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about parallel lines between evangelical culture and Republican politics. But this is a really important piece of what's happening, I think, culturally and in the church right now, is this divide between people who are wanting to acknowledge these connections and be self-critical and deal with it. And a lot of those people are those who have felt like they've had to leave The evangelical world in the last year. There's that camp and there's the other camp that just doesn't get it, doesn't see the connections, thinks it's part of this like liberal progressive agenda that's against the church and can't understand why people would want to walk away from their faith community. So bear with us for a sec. We're going to try to draw some of these connections out. So we referenced this Jamar Tisby article and agreed with his main point that you can look at election statistics from Roy Moore in Alabama and Donald Trump and make a connection based on statistical evidence that white evangelicalism has essentially become aligned with the Republican Party. We'll put a link to this article in the notes to the podcast, and one of the graphics in the article has an illustration of presidential election polling statistics over the last five elections. What you see is evidence of a statistical trend in which over the last four presidential elections, white born-again evangelical Christians voted for the Republican candidate. In 2004, 78% voted for Bush. In 2008, 74% voted for McCain. In 2012, 78% voted for Romney, and in 2016, 81% voted for Donald Trump. And the whole point of Tisby's article is to say these statistics are factually indicative of a pattern, and it's a pattern that at least should be read as a warning and a cause for caution and reflection on the part of those who self-identify in this same group of white evangelical Christians. And I want to go one step further and say not only is this indication of a clear pattern, but I would say that some of the great divide between how different Christians in America are viewing the state of our country and our church right now is because there's a third link in the chain, that not only is white evangelicalism linked to the Republican Party, but the Republican Party has, for decades, been linked To an ideology of white nationalism and even containing and accepting elements of white supremacy which is essentially trying to conserve the power and authority of white majority culture in america by defeating the threat of minority people of color and diversification and that what you can actually see and we're going to spend a lot of time in this podcast walking through this is that the white evangelical world has adopted theological interpretations of some of the most significant Christian ideas that most conveniently fit with a theological system that is able to align with the Republican platform, in part because that also allows that same demographic of people to conveniently reinforce the white nationalist, white supremacist seedbed of the Republican platform that allows white evangelical Christians to preserve their power in American society using the Bible as a tool to do so. Okay, this is, you're, you're making it sound a little bit like it's
1: intentional, and I just don't think. You know, I have a lot of friends that are coming to mind right now, and I just don't think it's an intentional effort to to align with oppressive uh, theology that hap- that is oppressive and happens to support them. Like, I don't think that's what they're thinking. They're trying to be biblical. They're trying to interpret the Bible accurately as, as they see.
0: Yeah, and this is, Nate, where you and I have had a lot of discussion. But one of the, the basic assumptions here that I think we could all agree with is that one of the core ideas of Christianity— is that it is good news for people. And one of the questions we have to ask is, when we're we're investigating theological systems and some very differing interpretations of Christianity, is good news for which people? And part of what I'm saying is there is a psychological reality built into everybody's approach to Christianity, which is that it's supposed to be beneficial to us, to know Jesus. That's the whole premise behind evangelism and wanting to share the good news of the gospel. But I think what what you can see happening is that at a deep subconscious level, and I don't think this is intentional or conscious for the vast majority of, of white evangelical Christians, but at a deep subconscious level, white people in America, like myself, simply know that the current state of affairs and the past state of affairs benefits us to be the majority culture with essentially government protections benefits us to be the recipients of unequal pay and unequal work opportunity and a leg up in essentially every segment of society it benefits us and to change that to enact equity for people of color and women in our society means we get knocked down a notch, us white men. And that, by definition, is harmful to our way of being. I would say it's it's actually beneficial in terms of the, the health of our souls and our lives. But economically, socially, that's us taking a hit. It's been said before, but it's worth repeating here. When you have been habituated your entire life to experiencing privilege, to experience equality and equity actually feels like oppression. Meaning, if you're a white man like myself in American culture, to actually experience racial justice and sexual equality feels painful because it means that we're losing a piece of that privilege that leg up that we've always had and the inherent part of us the selfish part of us wants to hold on to that so built into our natural bias as as white culture in America is this natural subconscious propensity to serve ourselves or to protect ourselves or protect our own benefits by preserving the status quo in society. And this is what many people are pointing to is racism in our culture. It's this preservation of an economic system that benefits white majority culture at the expense of people of color. So I don't think many Christians are actively trying to come up with a theology that establishes white supremacy in American society. But I think that all of us have a, deep propensity to lean towards views, whether that's economic views, political views, or theological views that happen to benefit us by reinforcing the status of white America. And what I'm trying to say is that that deep, sneaky, evil, little selfish bias has actually been one of the key influences over the decades in our society in determining how the Bible is interpreted, and how to make sense of what Christianity means. There is a reason why white evangelical theology, which has formed itself into these sort of coalitions to establish what is good and orthodox, has through and through for generations decreed black liberation theology as an attack on the gospel. There is a reason why during the civil rights movement, the white evangelical church was one of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s fiercest opponents who attacked not only him, but his very beautiful theology of the beloved community. So again, I'm not saying that there is an, an, there is a, an explicit, conscious, intentional action or strategy to co-opt Christianity to support white nationalism. But there's a deep, quiet, self-preserving bias within all of us that I would say has been allowed to determine how to take the Bible and interpret it in a way that happens to benefit us white people at the expense of others. So I think you can actually trace through the development of white evangelical theology. Essentially, a utilization of Calvin and Luther and those guys' use of some Augustinian ideas to develop what is essentially an anti-liberation theology that has established itself on tenets such as the gospel is just about us individuals receiving forgiveness so that we don't have to feel guilty anymore, and pits that gospel of forgiveness, of guilt, against a gospel of justice and recompense and the healing of all peoples and the healing of systems and the healing of nations. And I think it's surely irresponsible for any of us who have been a part of white evangelical world to continue to deny that there are any connections between our theology and our political ideology that we're seeing run rampant right now.
1: It's really easy to love Martin Luther King 50 years later. Seriously. I know people who want to just read the Bible and do what it says, and if that means you know, they need to be poor, then they'll be poor and give all their money away or you know, whatever. They'll, they're open to like, this thing hurting them, uh, and the, the the message of the Bible not being great for them just because they want to believe what it actually says, or even our past selves, um, where we would sacrifice a lot for the the version, the interpretation, and the the gospel that we we believed. So it wasn't that's my evidence for it wasn't just we were just trying to do things that benefited us. You know, we we actually sacrificed because of what we believed.
0: Yeah, so don't mishear me. as saying that all white evangelicals or all Republicans are racist. That's not at all what I'm saying. Again, this is why we're touching on why theology matters. Theology, like all ideas, ends up having a a trickle-down effect. And I'm simply pointing out that there are undeniable connections between some of evangelical theology and some of the biggest issues in our culture, including racism. Again, I'm not suggesting that there's this great conscious, intentional, strategic ploy to promote white supremacy using evangelical doctrine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just recognizing, as I think we all need to, that white America has a selfish incentive to use any system of ideas, any ideology in a way that would reinforce its power in society rather than to undermine it. And that essentially we all have a selfish bias that is looking for systems of thinking that is convenient to our place in society. And as white Americans, especially white male Americans, there is a part of us that we must challenge that is constantly looking for ideas that reinforce our supremacy in this society. And what Jamar Tisby's article is pointing out is that there are undeniable, crystal-clear connections between the Republican Party and Republican conservative politics and the white evangelical church— in any response to that that simply wants to say that the Republican Party better lines up with Christian ethics is nonsense. We have to recognize that there are systems of thinking that evangelical doctrines serve to prop up that essentially protect the white majority culture in America at the expense of people of color. But again, what we're saying is that What needs to be done is to go upstream to the source of ideas. This isn't necessarily about pointing fingers at anybody, but built into the idea of Christianity and the Judeo-Christian heritage is a high value on self-criticism, self-critique. So what we need to do is go upstream to the theological ideas that are the source of where most of us get our thinking, and be willing to be ruthlessly critical of those ideas. The point isn't to point fingers at people and get back into this, you're racist, I'm not racist, back and forth. The point is to say, if our theological ideas are leading to some pretty bad consequences, if they're more easily co-opted to support toxic and abusive ideas than other theological systems or interpretations are, then why the heck are we going to stay committed to one tradition, one denomination, one camp of the church's view of the scriptures. Why not go back upstream, rethink things, or see if we can reimagine ways of interpreting Christianity and the Bible in ways that can't be co-opted to support white supremacy. So even if you don't buy the connections, if you're a Christian, there's no reason in the world to take the stance of denial. There's no justification for the response to my accusation of our theological heritage that it might be stained with ideologies of white supremacy. There's no justification for a Christian to respond to that position with a defensiveness and a self-justification. That's not how our heritage works. Just look at the Old Testament. Self-critique communal self-criticism is built into the entire thing. And that's part of what we said. We believe that the Bible is actually one of the best tools to undo the ways that the Bible has been used as a weapon. That's why I love a line in James three one that's warning, not all of us should be teachers because those that teach ideas, especially religious ideas, will be held to a significantly higher account. And that's what I think we just have to deal with for a bit is that our ideas have consequences. They bear fruit. And those of us who have taken it upon ourselves to espouse religious ideas have to bear the burden of responsibility to take care of how those ideas actually end up affecting things. We have to take responsibility for the fruit of those ideas, good or bad. So in reality, even if you think I'm full of it, there's no justification for not looking into it and rethinking our interpretations. Don't want to blow away Be just another quick to disappear What will I portray well, When I'm overruled And it's
1: totally okay to do this. I know I had thought in the past, like, it's not okay to uh, get outside this circle because this circle is the interpretation of the Bible. This circle is the gospel. And through research and reading and learning and talking to other people that aren't in that circle but are also Christians, I've learned how there's large, large groups, large denominations, Of people that do and that did not see the Bible the way I saw used to see the Bible, and uh, and at different points in history there was the whole church didn't see the Bible the way I saw the Bible, and so this is totally okay and and doubting the biblical interpretations that you've been handed um, that's totally totally good and totally necessary.
0: Some of you may be familiar, but it seems like there's this sort of war happening right now in between different segments of evangelical and post-evangelical world over the idea of doubt, and what we're seeing is repeatedly religious authorities espousing that doubt is sin and that Jesus died in order to save us from feeling doubt. And what they mean by that is doubting their teachings, their ideas, or their traditions. And what you have is this whole other side that we're a part of, saying, wait a second, Doubt and self-critique and critical self-reflection are intrinsically built into what it means to be a Christian and a part of the church, especially when it comes to re-examining particular interpretations and traditions. And we just want to share for a second that that's actually been an integral part of our own stories. I mean, I can share, uh, you know, this whole conversation may sound sort of accusatory, like we're lobbying these progressive liberal bombs toward the you know conservative camp. But the reality is I grew up as a white conservative male, taught to vote Republican, to hold essentially conservative family and social values. And when I became a Christian, became a leader in the church, got into vocational ministry, I distinctly remember that I had swallowed the white evangelical paradigm wholesale. And I actually remember having discussions and debates where I not only disparaged black liberation theology and pointed a finger towards anything that sounded like social justice as antithetical to the true gospel, but I also did so in in the guise of saying, you know, liberation theology is the black church projecting their psychological and cultural bias into their interpretation, and it was wrong because what needed to happen is for them to abandon their biases and come at the text and the Bible free of cultural baggage, and that's what we were doing. Now, I've realized since then, oh no, I was doing white theology. We just don't call it that. We called white theology pure theology. We called it orthodoxy, so we actually called black theology or minority theology or womenist or feminist interpretations of theology biased and essentially heretical.
1: Yeah, it's really easy to not see your own biases and to look at the minorities and say they are um, clearly bringing their, um, their biases, their culture to the table, and, and we're not and it's easy to say because you're in the majority, and everyone agrees with you and this like Tim says, I mean this is, this was us um, as that was the way um, I was raised, but it was also the way that I taught and and led the church for uh, a number of years. and I even remember when um, a part of a church planting movement um, uh, a number of years back, we specifically moved into a predominantly black region of San Francisco and i i remember thinking and i remember talking with the other leaders about how we moved into a um you know a, an unchurched area in san francisco and then over the over the months and years there and walking the streets and and driving around and and talking to people and actually spending time in the churches there realizing oh no wait there actually are many many churches here and a lot of these people are a part of those churches i just didn't count them as the true, the one true, real church, because their theology was different than the theology I had at the time.
0: Yeah. And as Nate and I sit here, we can say that doubting those ideologies that not only had we been led to believe were the basics of Christian orthodoxy, but we'd actually perpetuated those ideas and taught them as leaders in the church, doubting those ideas is one of the best things we've ever done. And it's it's been a part of our healing. It's been a part of Jesus working in us to redeem and restore us. So the only reason we're able to sit here today and be honest and confess our complicity in a really messed up religious system is because at some point along the way, the doubts that were sort of festering for a little while built up to a critical mass that actually forced us to to take a step back and re-examine everything. I lament the ways that we were a part of this system in the past and actually perpetuated this system. And I'm tremendously thankful that at a relatively early point in my life, I was able to see a lot of what I was wrapped up in and begin a long complex process of deconstructing some of those toxic ideas that were woven into my ideology. And I think we just say that not only is it okay to doubt and critique and re-examine the theological traditions and systems that we've been handed, it's actually an ethical responsibility as a Christian to do so. And that means not just us critiquing others, But us critiquing our own critiques of others and you critiquing us, it's all up for grabs. So if you're listening to some of this and you don't buy in or you're not sure, that's awesome. And if you're actually one of those who's willing to keep listening, even though you're not sure if you agree, that's even more awesome. So thanks for being with us.
1: Yeah, we do want to thank you for coming along on this journey with us. And if you're not 100% certain yet that white evangelical theology can be hurtful and toxic. want to invite you back next week because we're going to share stories from people who have actually been hurt by theology. Hopefully this will help bridge this gap between these two groups. We're really excited to have on more voices than just our own on this show. Finally, if you could check out those couple articles that we mentioned in the show, they're in the show notes. I think those would be really helpful for kind of summarizing some of what we talked about on this episode and kind of preparing you for these stories that are gonna be shared next week. Okay, so
0: Tim, what about if you end the show this week? You know what to say, just just This is me ending the show. <laughs> We're in the shed. Leaving the shed. Peace. Wait, okay. Um go to iTunes and leave a review. Yep and a comment, and subscribe. And email us all your critiques, questions, anger, frustrations, whatever, at contact at who did Who did our music, Tim? Kale Haugen. Get your kale salad, at. I don't even know her name pretty
1: upon her breast You can find Kale at kalehaugen.bandcamp.com If you have music you want us to use on the show that you've recorded you can get in touch with us and let us know about it contact at almostheretical.com